What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, enough, and I'll tell you why. Gonna... <laughs> that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, I'm going to monitored and recorded to accept this call say or dial five now welcome to death row diaries the only podcast hosted live from death row i am matt ralston and i'm william negara live from death row yeah so today we have to talk about joseph d'angelo who you've definitely heard of under the name the golden state killer and we're going to get into this and the whole web of deceit and violence involved with this guy. At first, we have a listener-submitted question. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to contact us on our Instagram and Facebook pages, where you should also be following those pages. That is Instagram.com slash Death Row Diaries or at Death Row Diaries and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And check out our Patreon page. Again, that is patreon.com slash deathrowdiaries where you get bonus episodes and special content that's only available on the Patreon feed. Now, Rick in Memphis, Tennessee asks, Bill, are there serial killers out there who are wired this way, who know they're serial killers, but they recognize it, they get some help, and they just don't kill anyone? for a future episode but we do appreciate the question and like i said follow us on those accounts send us your questions go to apple podcasts and give us a rating for the show rate and review it that is important and we do appreciate that now on to the show joseph james d'angelo the golden state killer he 
<laughs> wow, this guy's scary. A lot of times I'm not scared of these guys from looking at them or like I wouldn't be afraid to talk to them. I recognize that the things they did are scary and maybe I should be scared of them because maybe if I'm not looking, they will stab me in the neck. But they don't all give me the creeps so much. And this guy really does. Well, this guy is your nightmare. I mean, this guy was made for you, Matt. <laughs> I mean, just think about this. You really have a thing about law enforcement. You, I know you, you, come on, look, you're a bit of a conspiracist. You picked it all out to get you. I've heard your, your, your rants when you're on the podcast. And I've heard what you said. This guy is really your nightmare because he's a freaking cop. This guy was law enforcement for nine years. He wasn't a security guard. He was an actual detective slash police officer that investigated burglaries and all this stuff. So, yeah, this is Matt Ralston's worst nightmare, a cop who's a serial killer, which then, of course, affirms everything you've been telling me for the past couple years. <laughs> yeah, imagine getting pulled over by this guy and just, God... I'm sure there are just thousands of weird things that he did as a police officer. Just groping oh, yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, this guy was, this guy's got some serious issues. And, you know, you look at this guy's career and nothing at all says serial killer, burglar, rapist, you know, None of his acts as a regular person show this side of him, which is even scarier. So let's get into this guy. So he's born on November the 8th, 1945. There are 13 murders attributed to him, over 50 rapes, over 120 burglaries, and he was active for a very long time. You know, most law enforcement... Most law enforcement say that he was active between 1974 and 1986. You know, you guys have heard me do it before. I, I'm of a different opinion. He started well into the 60s, and um, he ended probably a little bit later in 1986. 1986 is the last murder we know that they've connected to him, but I don't believe he stopped. So we'll, we'll talk about the reasons why, Matt, and we'll talk about what this what made this guy so um really so devastating that he, he this guy has more nicknames than anybody Matt. i mean i've heard you know you've heard the nice stalker these great names but listen to this guy's this like different names this guy has and he also had something that a lot of serial killers don't use three different terms or three different sprees in completely different arenas of crime that ended in being a serial killer. So, with no further ado, these are his names. They called them the Veseli Ransacker. They called him the East Area Rapist. He was known as the East Side Rapist, the East Bay Rapist, the Creek, the Creek Bed Killer, the Diamond Knot Killer, the Night Stalker, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is the original Night Stalker. This isn't Richard Ramirez, who later on was dubbed that. This guy was the original Night Stalker. And his name, Irons, defies that. Iran stands for East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker. Irons. And then ultimately, a journalist slash writer by the name of McNamara, a um, woman who wanted to get this, revive this case. She wrote a book about it called I'll Be Gone in the Night. Uh, she has passed away since then, but she dubbed him the Golden State Killer, which got a lot more interest in this guy's case. Yeah, Iran's is pretty terrible. Yeah, I was curious about that because a lot of these guys, Ramirez comes to mind, they do commit other crimes, as you might imagine, um, burglaries and things like that. But I haven't seen one who was actually kind of like separately just a professional burglar. I think he he burgled places where he wasn't even doing any raping or killing. And I was wondering how common that is among these guys. 
Well, it, it's very interesting, but it's, it's, it's kind of common when it comes to serial killers because what he was doing was he was perfecting his M.O. He was, you know, M.O. is a learned behavior. So he's learning is what he's doing. Um, as I've said before, serial killers usually become, you know, they're, they're groping in the dark. They don't know exactly who they are yet. With this guy, he was perfecting his craft. It was getting better and better as he went along. And interestingly enough, and you mentioned Night Stalker, because this guy is the original Night Stalker. That was the name that was given to him. And then later on, Richard Ramirez kind of does very similar things to this guy. And I'll explain that later, but I, I, I do want to just kind of jump forward and say that, in my opinion, Richard Ramirez kind of took after this guy. He kind of modeled himself after this serial killer. There has been a lot of speculation, and I can tell you it's true because I know serial killers that study other serial killers, or there were fans of theirs, and that is completely accurate. I know serial killers, I've spoken to them, and they've told me how they used to study other serial killers, or at least ones that they admired. I believe that Richard Ramirez, the knife stopper, admired the Golden State Killer, who was the original knife stopper, because his MO was so similar to this guy. Now, his signature is a little bit different, but we have the same type of logic, the same type of drive in both of these guys. So let's start with this guy's upbringing, and really this gives the audience a pretty good picture of who this guy, Joseph James... You have 60 seconds remaining. ...who he really is, and we should do that when I obviously come back. All right, we'll be back. Yeah, so if we get into his background a little bit, we'll see uh, that he was involved in some conflicts like in the, you know, the East-West Germany conflict, which I don't know anything about so much in terms of I never met someone that was in that, but we've seen a few guys that were involved there, and it seems like there was a lot of domestic violence, just soldiers uh, marauding around during this time. Yeah, it was a different time. Obviously, um, he is what they call a, a... He was in a military family. His father... You know, they're born, by the way, back in New York. His mother is Kathleen. They wrote his father's Joseph D'Angelo. Uh, he was a sergeant in what they call... He was an, an army guy, but he was part of the Air Force. And this is... The Air Force kind of split off later. So his father was an Air Force sergeant. Uh, D'Angelo has two sisters, one younger brother. And, and there are, I suppose, these, written, these reports or these witness reports that he and his older sister, who was nine years old at the time, he was seven, that while they were playing in an abandoned home uh, in, on an Air Force base, two airmen, uh, I guess, slapped him around, pushed him to the side, and they grabbed his nine-year-old little uh, sister, and both airmen, well, basically raped her. And this was in Germany during this, uh, this situation, because they were stationed there, as I mentioned, they moved around. Now, you know, it, it, it's really difficult to, to say how accurate this is, because obviously he names who his sister is, the report obviously didn't come from the airmen because nothing came of it. So we're getting this from the sister and him. It's, it's kind of hard to invent something like that. And I, I think it probably happened. But I don't know how much that plays a part in a person becoming a serial killer. And I, as you know, Matt, I, I don't believe it does. It's tragic. It should never have happened. I, I feel terrible for his sister, what happened, for him having to witness that. But that does not excuse his actions later as a young man or an adult. So that's kind of my take on that. But, I mean, he, he, look, this guy is a, he's a smart guy. He's not this guy, like we've talked about, some of these guys are half retarded and they're just, you know, running around on drugs and meth. This guy's totally different. Um, he attends a good junior high school in California, Mills Junior High. He graduates. He goes to high school. He plays varsity uh, baseball. He's a pretty popular guy. Um, there are rumors. Again, they're unsubstantiated. 
bench did, but the DA's office in the counties that were going to prosecute him mentioned that it was rumored that he tortured animals as a teen and that he burglarized homes, uh, which doesn't really surprise me. I mean, really, right now, how many guys have we seen that we've talked about torture animals? I explained that before. The reason they do this is because they're feeling their way around a dark room. They're trying to figure out who they are because they have this pit that makes them want to do these things. And they start off with smaller items. Animals. Usually people who rob banks and become larceny, people who commit larceny and big jobs usually start off pulling off petty thefts, ripping off banks, and they keep graduating. Same thing with serial killers. He's torturing, killing animals because that's where he's going to lead to coming to becoming a serial killer. Let's pause real quick. This helicopter. I got to. It's still looking for you, huh? Yeah, the torturing animals thing. It's kind of hard to to know kind of what people thought of that. I I feel like it would still be hard to be a popular guy and have it kind of known that you're torturing animals. I, I don't see the girls going for that, especially. Yeah, no, you're right about that. But look, let me bring a personal experience into this to kind of like, you know, bring some kind of focus. So, and, and look, and, and for those who they say, well, uh, yeah, shit, no, it's no wonder that Bill turned out to be the way he is. Look what his dad was. Look, my dad, married guy, twice, has children, but when he was a younger guy, when I was a small child, he hated cats because cats always, you know, went into the pigeon cages and ate his prize you know, award-winning pigeons that were tumblers, rollers, and all these beautiful birds. So my dad would set traps for them. And he was so pissed off at these freaking cats that he would kill them. Of course, today, that would be considered like a freaking federal offense, but you understood what he was doing. And my dad wasn't a serial killer. He was a normal guy, paid his taxes. He ended up passing away at the age of 85 with Alzheimer's, but he never did anything against any human being. So just because you kill a couple cats or do something, and for all you PETA people out there, I'm not, I'm not downplaying like it's nothing big deal. It, it is a big deal. But it doesn't always lead to you becoming a serial killer, so I, I, I totally dismiss that. And usually, you, you look at D'Angelo, what he does after that, you know, he, he joins, he, he graduates from high school, and he joins the Navy. This guy is not a freaking weirdo. He is sent to Vietnam, where he serves on the Piedmont, the USS Destroyer. And then he serves on the USS Cabrera. This guy is an honored naval guy, and there's nothing going on weird. Now, did he do some weird things in Vietnam? I believe he did. I can't substantiate it, but I'm willing to bet that he did. Well, if you're a guy that wants to do those kinds of things, which he is, why wouldn't you? I mean, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. I don't know how many people were even ever prosecuted for that kind of thing in Vietnam, but I think it was pretty common, and I think it was easy to get away with. You're absolutely right. I've spoken to a a number of veterans that were in Vietnam. As you can see, she fixed the microphone. She's back on it. Um... And I was saying, they, they speak about acts that they saw other airmen, naval people, military people commit on Vietnam Vietnamese women. So it doesn't surprise me now. Did it happen? Absolutely. Did this guy do it? I'm willing to bet so. But he, he gets out. He comes back to the United States. And what did he do? He doesn't turn into a rapist, all this thing. Although, I believe that he's committing all these crimes during this time. He was just pretty good. He's what I call it extremely organized criminal because at this time he's not a at least in the United States not a rapist or murderer so he goes to Sierra College he gets an associate degree in uh, police forensics he graduates with honors and around this time this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded around this time he meets a young woman named Bonnie, and what's her last name, Matt? Colwell. Correct. And they, they get engaged. But something really interesting, because remember when we were talking about this, Matt, you asked this off the air, you said, look, you know, these guys, uh, 
I mean, can you just look at them and know they're serial killer? I'm like, no, absolutely not. So, that they're wired to, no. You can really get to know them. And when you get to know them, you usually can see these things if they don't hide them. And this is a perfect example of this guy doing that. So he meets this young woman, they get engaged, and before the marriage, she breaks it off with this guy. And she's later interviewed, and it's behind this guy's insatiable sexual deviancy. He's kind of a weird guy because he's not hiding who he is to her. But he learns very quickly. This guy adapts probably as well or better than any other serial killer I've seen. So she leaves him. And how does he respond? Well, he doesn't go around murdering people. He attends the University of Sacramento, Sacramento State University. He earns a bachelor's in criminal justice, and then he takes post-grad classes to further his police training. And then he completes a 32-week police internship and becomes what? A police officer. So, not a weird guy here. And what does he do now? He marries, he finds his future wife. They get married. And he's living the perfect middle-class life. Crazy, right? Yeah, to think about it. Is any part of him, do you think, taking these criminal justice classes and pursuing this to kind of figure out how cops think and to kind of plan how he can execute these crimes? Or is that giving him a little too much credit? No, I think you're on the right path. I believe his interest has a dual purpose. I think you're right, 100%. He's learning to craft because he wants to know how police operate. I also believe because he's a control freak and his, his psychology is based on uh, sexualizing control. And I know that's kind of a hard one to, to, to visualize and understand, but when you sexualize control, you basically get gratification from controlling people. Well, what better way to control you if you being a cop? But even more interesting, to learn the craft even better, he becomes a burglary unit police officer at Exeter, California. So he's actually investigating burglaries between 1973 and 1976. That's what he does. But it's very interesting because we're talking about what he, what he becomes on the outside. We already know he had a situation where a woman leaves him who's supposed to marry him because of this reason. He's got something going on behind him. But he covers it very well. He marries another woman. He doesn't show that other side to her. He covers very well. He knows how to compartmentalize extremely well. So 1973, 1976, he's a police officer in Exeter, California. But interestingly enough, the ransacker, the police event ransacker, is already operating, which means that Joseph D'Angelo has already started his career as a burglar, which he committed 120 burglaries between, you know, that those years, 1974, 1976. But I believe he started much earlier than that. As soon as he came back from Vietnam, he was already doing burglaries. I'm trying to think. If you're committing burglaries, I don't know if he's kind of targeting people that he knows have assets or that look like it, but I mean, what are you coming away with per burglary? Even if he got, I don't know, $1,000 and he did... 100 burglaries over the course of several years you know is is it more of a supplemental thing can you really i know you can support yourself this way if you're professional but i'm you know what do you think he's kind of getting out of all this well his, his reasons are a lot more nefarious than you would think he's not breaking into these houses to make a money or get a fortune he only takes blue chips, blue chip stamps, some collector coins. He does like to take firearms, but man, he's not doing it for the money. He's doing it because he's he's refining his technique. He's going into these homes because he's getting comfortable. 
if he's going to be house, he knows how people respond. This guy, unfortunately, and I call it as I see it because I recognize it, he's a student of human behavior. This guy is not only a control freak, a cop, and he's in a position of control. He's also a student of human behavior. And he's studied marks to see how people respond, how people close their homes. He's studying ways of getting out of the home. He's studying areas. And the bigger picture is he's studying environmental tip-offs in communities. So he knows how people respond. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It's really scary to really look at this guy through my eyes because I recognize what he's doing. And at the end, he proves it. He goes up. How many years was he free? Nearly 50 years. They didn't catch him. And they only caught him because of basically luck. Let me call back. Yeah, this is a big reason I'm paranoid about people breaking into my house. I always have been, and it's never happened. Someone broke into my garage. I didn't really care about that. It's totally separate from the house. But a friend of mine just had her house broken into, and they stole a bunch of jewelry. And I felt terrible for her. And if it was me, I would have been really scared, honestly, because it's not so much the jewelry, but it's the violation. And I said to her which I maybe shouldn't have, but yeah, that's really scary. I mean, how do you know as long as they're there, they're not just going to rape you, you know? And that's why the whole thing kind of freaks me out. Yeah, and it should, because you never know who's in your home. A person that has really the balls to come into a home at night when people are sleeping there, that, that's like going into the freaking rattlesnake's cave. What if the guy sleeping in the bed is me? And that guy's coming into my house. That's that's a scary situation. The guy has got to have balls the size of freaking, you know, cannonballs. But, so, interestingly enough, between 1973 and 1966, he's a cop. And then he transfers to Auburn, California Police Department between 1976 and 1979. And it's really interesting because in 1973, he marries a woman named Sharon Marie Huddle. And they moved to Citrus Heights, California, where some of these burglaries are happening. So this guy is scoping out the area. This guy's doing something that, well, serial killers don't do. That whole thing is to say, don't shit in your own backyard. This guy is doing exactly that. But listen to this. His wife isn't some dumb woman. She's a freaking divorce lawyer. And in this time, he has three daughters. He is considered by his daughters to be a good father, a provider, a good guy. But this whole time, this is what's going on, man. Between 1974 and 1976, as I said, it was a training ground for a civil rapist who would later become the East Area Rapist. So let me give you one example. In 1974, March the 19th, he does what's considered the first burglary as Javaselli Ransacker. And, you know, he goes in there and he was satisfied taking piggy banks, coins. He'd throw around women's clothing, a couple of blue chip stamps, he'd take some rings, a few guns. And he often broke in multiple homes in one day. This is kind of hard to do when you're a cop and you're working a normal job. But what he's doing is he's perfecting his methods. Sometimes he'd put dishes next to the door. So if somebody came home, they'd spill over, he'd hear it. Other times he would just open the house, go inside with gloves on, and then he would open up windows and he'd practice how to get out. This wasn't a guy who was just taking things. As I mentioned, he was practicing. It's crazy that this guy spent years, not a couple tries, he spent years practicing his craft until ultimately he would become the other guy. So listen to this. September 11, 1975, breaks into the home of, of Claude Smelling. 
he's a professor at the College of the Sequoias. Interestingly enough, D'Angelo had connections to College of the Sequoias. This guy was a professor, and he awakes to the strange noises he hears, and he goes to investigate. But listen, previously, in the same year, in February, he catches a skied, a ski mask peeping Tom under the window of his daughter's room, and he runs him off. So a few months later, he hears something weird. He goes to investigate, and he finds his garage and carport open. What does he find? A skied masked intruder attempting to kidnap his daughter. And he had threatened the daughter to stab his shooter if she didn't come along. At that point, the intruder shoots the professor twice and kills him. And uh, after the shooting, he flees. He flees on a bicycle, by the way. He leaves the girl there. And that is right there is the first killing that D'Angelo is recognized for. And it wasn't a killing because he was getting gratification. It was a killing out of stopping or trying to get away from a situation. But he gives a taste for it. And he flees. He disappears again. He doesn't disappear for long. So as you can see, all these situations, it's kind of that learning a method. Rarely do guys come back to where they catch him. He was caught as a peeping Tom looking at this girl's room, which tells us a couple things, Matt. One, he is really casing people that he wants to. He's stalking the, the victim, which is the, the signs of an organized killer or organized rapist, and he's studying his marks, the home, who's in the home, and then he comes back. That's scary. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of attaining a lot of knowledge, almost like a degree here. So are you saying that you think he may have graduated to killing due to this accident? Or it probably would have happened anyway, but maybe this kind of spurred it on a little bit? Well, it was going to happen anyways. And um, I'm sorry to say this, but I think the media really screwed up with this guy. And they really started pushing this guy's butts because, you know, they call him the Vesalio Ramsacker, and he's and he, now he's he's starting to try and take people. He tried to take that girl, and in 1975 he returns to the same area. He's wearing a mask. He enters the backyard of a home. It's actually at uh, uh, 1505 Cowick Avenue. And there happens to be a stakeout happening there because of all these burglaries. And a detective is there. Um, The detective sees him. Again, a masked man. They don't know who he is. And he attempts to detain him. The masked guy, who we know is D'Angelo, screams when he gets caught or seen. He pulls off his mask and the detective fires a shot at him. But instead of just fleeing, D'Angelo pulls out a pistol and shoots the officer, whose name is McGowan, and shoots at his face. Then during the commotion, he jumps the face and escapes. And again, when they when they go to see where he jumped over the fence, they find in a bag blue chip stamps and coins. And we know that's what D'Angelo likes to take. So we know it's D'Angelo. Um, obviously, they didn't know that at the time. But it's, it's him doing what he does. He's casing joints. He's getting his jollies off of it. He's kind of controlling the narrative. And he graduates. But it takes him a different situation. And that happens in 1976. And again, he was a police officer during this time. He moves to Sacramento, California. And his crimes escalate. New area more balls and he goes from being a burglar to becoming a rapist and his area of operation is Carmichael, California Citrus Heights which is where he lives Rancho Cordova and East Sacramento and what he's doing is he's redefining he's refining 
Is there any kind of Jack Unterberger scenario? That's a guy we studied before who was a journalist reporting on the murders that he was committing. Um, is there any kind of element of that here? Is this guy as an officer doing any investigating of the, the burglaries and things that he's committing? Like Oderberger, he was in Oderberg. I'm horrible at names. But there's a similar thing going on. This guy's a little bit different because he's actually sheriff. He's actually a police officer. And he, he likes to control everything. Look what he's doing during this time of being an officer, a burglar, and now a rapist. He's calling the police departments. In, this, in, in 1977, December, he calls the police department. He tells them, you're never going to catch me. This is the East Bay rapist. You dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. He's doing these things during his, his reign as a rapist. It's incredible what he's doing. He goes to Sacramento and he escalates, but he's already raping the same month, December 9th, 1977. You know, it's the Merry Christmas thing. It's me again, Merry Christmas. He's talking on the next day. I'm going to hit tonight. And he gives an address, Walt Avenue. The, the next month, January 2nd, 1978, his first victim gets a call. He calls the victim who he already raped, and he calls her. And it's that famous call you heard on all the TV programs where he's saying, gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you. He said he says, bitch, bitch, fucking whore. All these things he's saying, but he's trying to control the narrative. He's obsessed with controlling everything. And he's a cop. It's incredible what this guy's doing. It's kind of hard to be a full-time cop. On your off time, you're a burglar the ransacker, and then you become the East Area Rapist, you move to Sacramento, and you escalate your crimes to include rape, and then he begins to move forward, which we know then to become murder rapes. All right, so this whole time I've been trying to figure out how he's choosing which houses to burglarize and how he's casing the houses or is it random how is he uh, you know what's his goal okay so you got very good question this is exactly what I wanted you to kind of touch on because he is not picking at random this guy he's performing what he learned in Vietnam reconnaissance he's going into neighborhoods that he already knows searches for the victims. He breaks into the homes way prior to the night that he comes to the house. In advance, it's called a setup. He sets the house up. He knows who lives there. He knows who is there during the night. Is it a child, a woman? Is there a man there? And then he, he studies the layout of the neighborhood. What are his escape routes? This is during the daytime he's in these homes. He plants tools in the houses, shoelaces, to tie people up. He looks for guns. If the guns are there, he takes out the clips. He takes out the ammunition and leaves them there. What he's doing, Matt, he's setting up the houses so when he comes that night or the night that he chooses, he's ready and there are no surprises. This is one of the most, this is one of the most elaborate, well thought out, and organized this is one of the most organized rapist criminals I've ever seen. And it's his police background. Let me call back. Yeah, so I guess this is a period of escalation. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, he's still a cop and 
attacking now women. Women that are alone or with small children. And interestingly enough, it's obvious he's following the media. He is looking for clues. He's also part of the police department. As I said, I'm willing to bet that he was calling these other police departments because he was part of a burglary unit and talking to the police officers, sharing notes, speaking to people. And this is something that was notorious back in the 70s and still up probably in the 2000s that law enforcement didn't share information. They're very, you know, territorial, territorial about who and what they were doing. So he'd probably talk to them, listen to the media, and the media started calling him a coward. By this time, he's known as the East Area Rapist because he's raping women, and the media begins to call him a coward because he only strikes at women or attacks women that are alone or with children. And guess what this guy does? He immediately, in response to being called a coward or a guy that only attacks women that are alone, he changes his ammo to couples. He now breaks into the house, puts the flashlight in the, the guy's face because he likes to attack couples now. He threatens with the gun. He has the woman or he tries to do it himself, but he usually has the woman tie the male up with shoelaces or some kind of ligature. He often then has the woman or the wife stack dishes on top of the male who's laying on his stomach, usually on his, on his back, and he tells him, if I hear the dishes fall from your body, I'm going to kill everybody in the house. That right there is an act of complete control. He is controlling a situation with dishes. He has the woman tie the man up. And then what he does is he takes the woman to the next room and he rapes her while her husband is listening. This right there, Matt, is the most extreme level of control a perpetrator can you know, really put on a person. Imagine being emasculated, basically, by another man because you are basically powerless to help the woman you love being raped, and you're sitting there knowing that if you move, he's going to kill maybe your children, your wife, and you. I mean, that's horrible. Yeah, the ingenuity of it is actually, I don't want to say brilliant but you know obviously he knows what he's doing um man i don't know i think i would have to get up though yeah you know i, I actually would while i was you know really thinking about this guy I thought you know he's got a gun but you know these are things you have to think about if you're a man or, or a woman and you, a loved one is being harmed his wife's being raped and you're thinking okay I'm tied up, but I'm tied, I, I, there's dishes on me. Can I get these? Well, I'm sure some of the guys got the knots off them. And the question is always, can I get to them quicker than he can pull that gun and shoot me or shoot my wife or kill my kids? And that's a huge question. It's going to haunt those men for the rest of their lives that could never do anything. Um, but interestingly enough, during his 37th attack, and remember, this guy raped over 50, he made, he hit 120 homes in burglaries, and he raped over 100, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, 51 women. On his 37th attack, the rape victim hears him say, I hate you, Bonnie, over and over as he's raping. So you'd ask, why is he saying, I hate you, Bonnie? Well, if you remember, I believe it, that her, his fiance who left him, her name was Bonnie Caldwell. Am I correct? Bonnie Caldwell. Yep, that's her. And he's heard saying, I hate you, Bonnie, as he's raping a victim. This guy is bent. Yeah, yeah, so I guess he's obsessed with his ex wife, but I mean, that's not why he's doing this. Um, no. No, I, I think. I'm sorry, go ahead. I just, I guess I don't understand. Is he just doing that to. Because he'll later just do things to be weird, to kind of freak people out. Like red herrings, basically. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely. 
like one of the things that he would do is, and I'm glad you brought that up, uh, up Matt, is that, you know, while he's raping these women and has these guys under complete control, you know, he goes in the kitchen, turns on the TV, makes himself a sandwich, has himself a glass of milk, makes some coffee, watches television for a little while, while the people are there basically powerless. And then he'll turn off the TV after he satisfies you know, grotesque urges, and he, they think he's left. So the people then immediately go to her husband, try and take the, 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 the dishes off him, and suddenly this guy pops out, and to scare them, he starts laughing, and then, he, then finally he leaves. I mean, what kind of crazy shit is that? Well, you've done all this damage, and then you hide in the house to hear what they're doing, and when they're finally, you know, basically almost, when they're almost free, you pop out on them and, you know, go, ah! I, I mean, I, this guy is, a, I mean, look, he, he's a control freak, and this is what he does, but um, it doesn't stop. You know, he goes to San Joaquin County. He goes to Stanley's, uh, Stanley's County, Yolo County, Contra Costa County, Sacramento, and he strikes 39 times. And most of the time that they hear or see a guy, he's on a stolen bicycle. He's stolen a bicycle, and he rides that bicycle to the crime scene. Um, yeah, and, and then, of course, Matt, you know what happens in 1979. Something happens in his life that kind of changes a lot of things. Um, and that is that he is caught shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. And he's still a cop during this time, and of course, they fire him from the police department. Um, during the process, he is so upset that he threatens the chief of police and tells them that he's going to kill him, and then stalks the police chief for several weeks during this process that they're firing him. So they have to have a hearing. The police union, you can't just fire someone like that. But I assume if you're caught shoplifting, then that's a conflict of interest. You just can't be a cop anymore. There's a few things you can't do. You can beat the hell out of people. That's fine. But you can't be shoplifting and committing petty crimes, right? Yeah, you cannot. But he makes a big mistake because, you know, you get caught for Petty theft, just a hammer and a, and a couple of, you know, and a dog repellent. Obviously, it's for his burglary. Certainly, come on, I mean, it's pretty obvious. But worst of all, in those days, if you get caught doing something, it really doesn't mean there's no internet. You can't just it go online and people know about it. You get caught shoplifting, it's usually hell right there. You may be arrested, maybe you're not. But what he does during the, this whole, the, the security guard, has got him, he fakes a heart attack, and he makes a big issue of it, so of course it draws attention to himself, and that's how the police department find out that this guy has been arrested for, or charged with, and of course, that's how they find out this guy's arrested or been charged with a petty theft, and of course, as you mentioned, the the union's just not going to let happen as a process, but the police uh, department's chief police is very adamant about firing him, and he responds by, you know, basically threatening to kill the police chief, and then he stalks him for two or three weeks. Wait, so I didn't know this part. He gets, I guess, grabbed or detained by a security guard, and as a distraction, he fakes a heart attack so he can kind of get up and run away. He, like, grabs his chest and lays on the ground. Yeah, well, he fakes, like, so you feel sorry for him, maybe. I, I, I think it's a gut reaction. As I said, he's a very organized perpetrator, so everything he does, he plans it out so there's no surprises. And maybe a clue to why he doesn't like surprises, because that's how he acts. He acts like a complete idiot. He doesn't know what to do. So he fakes a freaking heart attack, but I mean, they've detained him, and he's not going anywhere. Um, you know, he starts screaming at them, profanity. He brings a lot of attention to himself, and I'm sure later on, he thought, shit. So... Well, yeah, because uh, yeah, for yeah. for how organized he is and he's meticulous, and yet he does all these kind of wacky things to draw attention to himself. 
And I guess that's just the thing of why he's now contacting the press and, and all this is that he, he, he doesn't want to just get away with it. He wants a little kernel of planting seeds and a little bit of attention, right? Well, the attention in this particular situation was a gut reaction because he didn't know what to do. That's the reason he plans things so well. That's why he, plans, he, he sets up the houses, he sets up the victims because he doesn't like um, surprises because he doesn't know how to act when he's... He's not one of those guys, like if you're an instinctive, instinctive criminal, if something happens, you, you remain calm and you just continue doing what you do. With him, it's a little bit different. He doesn't know what to do. So he does stupid stuff like screaming, yelling profanity. He fakes a heart attack. But he does like attention to all the phone calls. Remember, by this time when he gets caught, he's been a police officer for like seven years. And when he gets caught, he's already, they don't know it's him, but he has already had several nicknames. He is the East Area Zero Rapist. He is the, the Ransacker. He's all these names. Um, so he's not into this. He just caught him because maybe he was thinking, well, I need a hammer, I need some repellent. I don't want a receipt for it. I don't want people to remember me. I, I don't know what he's thinking there. But there have been several cases that I've seen and I've studied where serial killers actually like petty theft. That's something they do. Um, it's something that gets them. Maybe it's like a fat person. Oh, I'm not totally correct. Maybe it's like a fat person, an alcoholic, where they can't have the whole bottle, so he has a little shot of something. Or maybe, you know, it's like walking on the street, you really want a donut really bad, but it's only a little small miniature-sized chocolate, so you just throw it in your mouth to kind of satisfy that that thing craving for a chocolate bar. Maybe with him it's that. He, he breaks in or he, he does he does because he's trying to alleviate a little bit of anxiety he gets before he has to strike. But whatever it is, thank God it does, and it changes everything. Yeah, so he was already spiraling, but when he gets fired from being a police officer, it really sends him off the edge, and that's, you know, when the story that, that we know kind of starts to take shape, and we'll have to get into that next time, and we'll discuss everything involved here in his eventual apprehension so we will see you next time for part two on death row diaries i've been matt ralston 